that. If, uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn in the text with me, please turn to John chapter 17. So today we're going to be looking at John chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 14, and I'll be reading down through verse 19 uh, as we continue uh, and near the, the completion of our series in discipleship. And, and so uh, I've been in this for a little over a month, and, um, and we, uh, we have today's sermon and next week's sermon uh, that will also sort of tie in somewhat to, to the Reformation uh, and then, uh, then we'll go into a new sermon series. But this morning, we're looking at John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, reading down through verse 19. And here, Jesus is, he's speaking to or praying to his father. And here's what he says. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And this is the word of our God. May the Lord bless uh, the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word. So if you, if you turn in your Bible, uh, you will see, and, and probably many of you are just, are with, even if you didn't, are familiar with this text. It, it, is, it is a part of a larger section of scripture that is typically referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And this was the prayer that Jesus prayed. Many would describe it as almost a farewell prayer because he prayed it uh, soon before his betrayal and crucifixion and then eventually his resurrection and, and glorification. And he prayed this prayer to his father for, uh, for himself uh, but he also prayed this prayer for his disciples and for the church. And as a result of that, when we look at this prayer, I think we can, we can learn a lot of things from this prayer about what, what Jesus wanted, what he desired, what he longed for, for, uh, for his people and wanted his father to, to do for us. And I think from this particular prayer, we can find a lot of things that he teaches us about who we are called to be. And this specific text that we're looking at today, which is a part of the whole of the, the high priestly prayer, I think as we look at it, we can see some things very important about how when Jesus is praying here, he's praying that we would be shaped by, formed by, and defined by Jesus. In other words, that we would be like him. And that should make a lot of sense considering what a disciple is. I've told you before that a disciple of Jesus, uh, uh, really what a Christian is, is a follower or a learner of Christ. Now, as we think about that, being formed by and defined by Jesus, uh, we need to make sure we understand that there are some things about Jesus that are absolutely unique, right? And, and you, you know that. I mean, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the, the only begotten Son of God. He, he is the God-man, the Savior of the world. And we are not those things, right? That is, those things are unique to, to Jesus. And yet, at the same time, we are also called to be like him because he is, he is the true man. He is what God wants. He is the image of the living God. Paul says, says this in, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, and it's an important verse for us to keep in mind when we think about what God is doing all of this work in us to, to, for and to what end. He says, for those whom he foreknew and he also predestined uh, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and, and sisters, right? He, and we are his, his brothers and sisters in a sense. And, and we are to be, as Paul says very clearly, 
conformed. God has predestined us to this end, to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, what we are called to be is more and more like Jesus. We are to reflect him. We are to be defined by him. We are to be shaped by him. And I think that comes out very clearly in this text in in three important ways that I want to draw to your attention as we continue to talk about discipleship. The first of these is this, that we will face what he faced. We will face what he faced. The second one is that we must seek what he sought. And the third one is that we must go where he went, okay? These are three key things that I think we see in this passage that really do help us to to think about, uh, to further think about discipleship. We will face what he faced. We must seek what he sought. And we must go where he went. Now let's think about each of these as we explore the text a bit. The first of these is that we must face what he faced. Now when I say that, what I'm talking about are the, 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 the struggles, the rejection, the hardship, the persecution, uh, those things that Jesus faced because he sought to live for God in this world, right? And he faced them. And he makes it clear here, and there's another passage we'll look at in just a moment, that we are going to face those same kinds of things. That we will be, be hated as Christians Uh, as Jesus was. And we need to understand that. I mean, note what he says in verse 14, and then he he says something further, just sort of reiterating in verse 16. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then in verse 16, he says, they are not of the world. He's reiterating that same idea. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What he's describing is what is true for for us who, who are in Jesus, who have trusted in Jesus united to him, that we are no longer of this world, that we no longer get our marching orders from this world. We are no longer to be defined by this world, that we now belong to him and we are his. Just as Jesus is not of this world, you and I are not to be of this world. And therefore, we are to be different than the world. Now, how does that, that difference manifest itself? How does it take hold? Well, it takes hold because of this wondrous gift that he's given us. I prayed for it at the beginning before I started to read the scripture and preach today. And that is the gift of his word. Verse 14, again, the beginning, I have given them your word. And that word that he has given us is the the word of the living God that that is a part of renewing us and and renewing our thinking and and how we, we consider things and our perspective on life and how we live and all those kind of things. So that we now, because we are believers in Jesus Christ, are no longer right like those who are still a part of the world, who, who being a part of the world means, means what? It, it means rebellion. It means rejection of God. And as a result of that, it means, and Paul tells us this clearly in Romans chapter 1, it means a suppression of the truth. In other words, what the world constantly does is it pushes down the truth and it suppresses the truth. It doesn't live by the truth. It lives in darkness and not light. That's the world that we live in. But that is not who we are now called to be. And as a result of that, that we are now are being defined by and shaped and renewed by the word and not the world, we get our marching orders from the word and not the world, we are looking like Jesus and not the world, then here's a truth that all of us need to understand. If we stand for Jesus, then the world is going to stand against us. If we stand for Jesus, the world will stand against us. In fact, he prays this to his father, those, my disciples who are hated, but he, he states it earlier. Back in John chapter 15, let me read this to you. You're familiar with this probably as well. 
verse 18 and 19, where Jesus states to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you notice the logic that Jesus is using there? It's really clear, isn't it? That if, you were, if you're like the world and, and, and you're still in the world, you're going to be loved by the world because you're going to embrace its values and what it's like. But Jesus is saying very clearly, we've, we've been, if you are a Christian, if you are his, his disciples, you've been taken out of this and defined by something altogether different. And therefore, the way the world treated Jesus is going to be the way the world treats us. And we have to be prepared for that. And I think part of this prayer is to prepare us for it, but it also prays for, for, prays for our protection. And I think the reason for that is because of two errors and two huge mistakes we can make when the world pushes up against us. And, and you know probably what those are. I mean, it's like the world comes at you. The world seeks to, to do you harm, to persecute you, to reject you, all those kind of, to hate on you. And, and that can cause us to either run away in, in fear, right? To, to isolate, to hide, to retreat. Those are, those are responses. Or that the difficulties will come against us and, and we, we conform to it. We assimilate. We, we give in to it, right? And those are, those are both responses that I think we often can see in the church. Jesus prays this, though, in verse 15, and I think this is important for us to see. He says, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So one of the ways we think about this, and you've heard this language before, we're not of the world, but we are to be in the world. And the reason why we are to still be in the world is because God wants us in the world. Jesus doesn't pray that God would just take us out. He wants us in this world, in this world. Now, I'll talk about why in just a moment. But this speaks against the first part of verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. It speaks against that, that problem that has happened. It's in the history of the church. It's, it was a huge problem in, in Catholicism, of, in medieval Catholicism, of monasticism, and sort of retreating and pulling away and isolating yourself, right? But Protestants and evangelicals have done the same. I mean, we have in so many ways. By sort of circling the wagons, creating our own sort of insulated bubble we live in, ghettoized Christianity, everything has to be Christian, so we're not going to have any engagement with the, with the world. We've done the same thing. God wants us in this world, right? And Jesus, he says that in his prayer, right? The second part of it, though, is, is also really important because note what he does. He goes on and he says, here's what I'm praying. Don't take them out of the world, but I'm praying this. I'm praying that you, God the Father, keep them from the evil one. Now, when he prays that part of the prayer, he doesn't say, in, in a sense, I think this is the best translation of this. He doesn't say, I'm going to pray against evil in the general kind of way affecting them, okay? What he prays is that the Father would keep us from the evil one, the evil one. He's talking about, he's talking about Satan, and he's talking about the way he works, and he's talking about what he does to deceive. And that deception, that lie, I mean, earlier in John 8, you may remember this, Jesus calls Satan, what, the father of lies. And he says this about him. He says when he speaks, when he lies, he is speaking his own character. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. 
And what he's going to want a lot more than really anything else is to deceive us so that when the, when the, when the persecution, when the difficulties, when the hatred, when the hostility comes, I think one of the ways that he wants to deceive us is to basically say this. Listen, here's Satan talking, right? By the way, I'm not Satan. I'm just like, okay. Just in case. All right, just want to make sure. All right. If I stand up here, I'm going to tell you I'm not Jesus, I'm not God. I'm also not Satan. Right? When he starts whispering, he starts lying, here's the way he does this. He says things like this. You know, you're, you're receiving all of this rejection. You are being called an idiot and stupid and backwards and you don't understand and you're not keeping up and, and, and we despise you because of what you think the Bible says about all these things. And then he's, he's, what he's going to say is this. Why don't you just soften it up a little? Why don't you not talk about the whole counsel of God, but just some things? Why don't you find the appealing things and not the hard things? Why don't you, and you know churches do this, why don't you just assimilate and conform and try to be like the world to reach the world? That should make utterly no sense to you, to be like something to reach the thing. <laughs> what are you reaching them for if you are being like the thing? Right? What we need to hear is this, and it is the truth, and Jesus tells us this. We will face what he faced, but he has prayed for us. We have something. We have God. And here's the truth, and John talks about this in 1 John 4, 4, that he who is in us is greater than what does it say? He who is in the world. Remember that, okay? So we will face what he faced. Now, that leads to the second thing that I want to show you from this text that I think also is about discipleship, and it's an important lesson we learn, that we must, uh, we must seek what he sought. We must seek what he sought. And so then, okay, asking, okay, what, what did Jesus seek? If we are called to seek what he sought, what did he, what did he seek? What, what was that? And, and I think one way for me to answer that, and I think it's, and I'm going to show you why I can see this in the text, and it's the second. But one way to answer it is to say this, that, that Jesus saw himself, and, and, and rightfully so, is ultimately set apart to God, his Father, ultimately set apart to him, to, to, to do his will and to bring him glory. That's a way of thinking about Jesus. That he was set apart to God in all things to do his will and to bring him glory. Now, here's the, the thing. You may ask yourself, okay, where do I see that in the text? Well, there's a couple of places that I want to sort of draw out and do a, do a little exegesis for you and show you what, what's being said here. So in verse 17, it says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, Okay. And then verse 19, it says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay, so here's the thing that's interesting about this. Uh, the, the ESV, which is the English Standard Version, is the Bible that I'm reading, okay? Now, what, what, the, what the English Standard Version does in these two, two verses with the word sanctify and the word consecrate is that they, they basically take the, the same root Greek word but translate it with different English words, so the word sanctify and the word consecrate are actually two, two it's, it's actually the same Greek word, 
but they translate it in these two different ways in, in the English Standard Version. If, if you happen to have the, the New International Version, then in the New International Version, you'll actually see this. And if you could put that up on the screen, notice it says, sanctify them, in, in, sanctify them by the truth. That's the beginning of verse 17. And then for them, I sanctify myself, which is the beginning of verse 19. The reason they, they're doing that it's because that's actually the same Greek word. So they're trans translating the same. So why then, and here's the question that we should ask ourselves, why then does the English Standard Version, which we're using, why does it translate it differently? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a simple reason for that, to help us to have a little bit of clarity as to what's going on here as opposed to being confused. And why would we be confused over this? Well, because when you think about it, when it all does come down to it, you and me being sanctified, and Jesus sanctifying himself, they don't exactly mean the same thing, do they? They can't mean the same thing. And the reason they can't mean the same thing is because, in that sense, is because of the way we understand and think about sanctification. When we think of sanctification, how do we, how do we normally think about it? We normally think about it as progressive, do we not? And we normally think about it as progressive in the sense of, of you and me as sinners being brought into a relationship with God and therefore as a part of the Spirit's work in our lives by, the, through, by and through the Word, what happens is we are more and more, to use the language of the Puritans, mortifying the flesh or killing the flesh and living to the holiness of God. But then when we think about sanctification, we're always then therefore thinking about it from the perspective of struggling with sin and then overcoming sin. Jesus had no sin. He had no sin. He lived a life of, of, of perfect obedience to the law of God. There was no sin in him. And I think this is part of the reason why the ESV uses sanctify and uses, uses consecrate, because they want to make sure we understand that. But here's the way to get to all of it. Whether you are looking at the word translated in the English, sanctified, sanctified, sanctification, to be holy, to be made holy, to consecrate, or even what Paul would later do when Paul describes Christians, not just super Christians, but Christians, all of us as saints. Do you know what the word is behind all of those words? It's this word, and you know what it means. What underlies all of it is this, to be set apart to God. That's what it means. And of course it deals with holiness. Why? Because God's holiness is his set-apartness. God is holy. And all of us are to be set apart to him. Now then, if that is the case, then what this text is actually saying to us is this. Look at verse 19. Put that up on the screen in the ESV again. We know that we are from God. Sorry, put verse, I'm sorry, that is verse 19. Put verse 19 of the, the, um, this text. There you go. My fault, I just preach. And so whoever's running the screen, I apologize for that. Here's what it says. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. All right, here's what Jesus is saying. And notice that he does something so that we would do it, right? That's what he's doing there. Notice what it's saying. For their sake, I set myself apart. This is what this means. I set myself apart that, so that, they also may be set apart in truth. That's what he's doing. Now, what does that mean? 
that Jesus set himself apart. And why that word consecrate? That word consecrate is an important word. It's a word that's used in the Old Testament. Oftentimes what priests would do when they made the sacrifice. You know what he's talking about here? You know what he's talking about in setting himself apart? He set himself apart to do God's will to God's glory. And what was that? To take on flesh and to come here among us and to live a life that you and I could not live. A life of perfect obedience to God's law. And to die a death that every last one of us on planet earth deserved to die, taking our sin upon himself, he consecrated himself, not only as the high priest, but as the sacrifice itself. Jesus did all of that to the glory of God because it was his father's will. And all of that was done so that now you and I can do what? That we also may be set apart in truth. In other words, we can now do what? Really begin to to seek what he sought. Why? Because he gave everything for us. He gave his life for us to reconcile us to the living God. And he has given us his word so that now what Jesus did, wanting the will and the glory of God, can be what you and should want and desire, which is to do the will and the glory of God. Amen? To seek what he sought. Okay? Now that leads to the last thing that we see here. So we face what he faced, seek what he saw, and we also are to go where he went. And so when we talk about going where he went, we're not talking about his ascension to heaven, even though we will go there if you're a believer. You will go where he is, and praise God for that. But we're talking about what he did in the Father sending him here, right? John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his son. He sent his son. He so loved the world, he sent his son to this world, Okay. We're, we're called to follow that as sent ones. And so if you notice in verse 18, again, note how he speaks of himself and then how that then translates to what we are to be about. He says, as you sent me into the world. See, he's talking to his father. As you sent me, so I have sent them into the world. See what he's doing? You did this with me. This is what's happening with me. Now it's going to happen with my, my disciples. They are to be sent ones. I I mentioned last week to you that when we think of discipleship, it has to have these three components to it. And and there has to be a component of, you know, the the rational component, which deals with your renewal, your mind. There has to be a relational component, which I focused on last week as we talked about needing each other in discipleship. But there also has to be a missional component to discipleship. And that word missional comes from the Latin word missio, which means sent, that we are sent. In other words, we are made disciples and sent. This is why, and this is the very first sermon that we looked at, and, and um, we had a new member class, and, and Richard Moore, and our chairman of our mission committee, used the Great Commission, that go and make disciples of all nations, which is a mission passage. But it is also a discipleship passage. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's that we are we're sent. So then when you think about this, then the idea of, a, of being a disciple of Jesus it's not a stationary category. Do you, do you understand what I mean? It's, it's not like you just can be a disciple and that's it. That we are disciples and sent. In other words, disciples 
are actually called to be disciple makers. Not just disciples, but disciple makers. We're sent. The title of this sermon is The Context of Discipleship. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the context of discipleship? Is it just sitting in the church and that's it? It's not. That's not the context ultimately of discipleship. The context ultimately of discipleship is the world. It is the world. Which means something in terms of how we think about the church and how we think about our own Christian lives. I mean, it it is a mistake. And I want you to hear this if this is where you are. It is a mistake to think that I can just live my life just drinking milk and immature in the church. You, You are not following Jesus. And you are not following what a disciple is called to be. You're called to start eating some meat. You're you're called to maturity. You're called to grow. You're called to be a disciple. And to avail yourself of all that is necessary, all that is needed for you to grow up in Jesus Christ. So that you can then take on the responsibility wherever that is. And God has put you in all kinds of places, sovereign places. He's placed you to be a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples for Jesus. And one of the places for any of you who have children that should take place, as I mentioned last week, is in your home. You've been placed there to disciple your children. But there are all kinds of other places that God has put you, sovereignly put you, in work, in schools, in neighborhoods, right? in clubs, social gatherings, all these things, in barbershops. They're all places for you to speak the name of Jesus. And then as God works to bring people to himself, there are wonderful privileges to do what? Help them to grow in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that is, it's my responsibility. It's the church's responsibility. But it is all of our responsibilities. Right? Where are you with that? Where are you? We face what he faced. We seek what he sought. And we go where he went. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time in your word, and thank you for allowing us, Lord, to be yours and teaching us what it means to know you and grow in you. Uh, Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to trust in you, no matter what may come, because we know that you are working our lives and you are using us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.